Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast, where I have the unique opportunity to visit with people on the regular who have done amazing things in their lives that are contributing to the community and really for the betterment of humanity at some scope or level. And today, this is a super big honor for me because I get to spend time with a newfound friend that I've just like connected with so deeply, so quickly, and uh, the chance to share this few moments with him and us share that with you is going to be an absolute pleasure. And if you are a sports fan, you're going to love this. If you're a fan of great humans, you're going to love this. So once you hear it, you may want to share it with people because this is going to be truly one of my best interviews that I've had the chance to do. It's fantastic. And today my guest is Mr. Jerry Schemmel. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. <laughs> Absolutely. And for people who may not know you, because you know this podcast is worldwide, I'm sure, being heard everywhere. Uh, Jerry is a fantastic sportscaster. He's been in the game for a long, long time, and now he's moved on to different things, but spent years with the Rockies, years with the Nuggets. And that was my first experience. And Jerry, I got to tell you, when I was a young guy, you know, going through just getting out of chiropractic school and, and coming back home to Denver and building my practice, one of the things that really made me feel good about where I was at was my city. And within my city was my sports teams. The Rockies were new. The Nuggets were doing their thing. And to hear your voice on the Nuggets every single night was really an, an amazing thing. So first off, thank you for the way that you brought pride to our city by describing what our team was doing. How was that? <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. Thanks for those very, very kind words. It was awesome, to be really honest. You know, I, I had 18 great years doing the Nuggets. They weren't always great. They weren't a, a great team. In fact, there were some really lean years. But toward the end, before I left, they, they really got good. And, and um, it was just a it was an honor. It was a it was a pleasure. And there was not one game in those 18 years, Jim, where I wasn't excited about going to the arena. Seriously, I just it, it was it was a dream job and I just uh, enjoyed it and love the preparation and love the execution of the broadcast and and painting picture as a radio announcer thinking uh, that I, I've got to be the eyes of, of the listeners. And, and that's what I tried to do. And I tried to keep the energy level up. And it was just uh, an enjoyable 18 years. I, I, I miss it. I can tell you that I'm just doing NBA games. Well, you did a magnificent job and you sure were my eyes for those road games talking. You know, I can still hear you talking about Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and then some of the greats that we had on our teams during those years, Carmelo and some of the rest. And so, yeah. man, it was a great job. And I'm, I'm really interested. When did you know you wanted to be a, a sportscaster? Did you, did you first want to be on TV? Was it radio? How did you get into the flow of knowing that's where you wanted to kind of take your life? Yeah, and it was early on, Jim. It really was. It was, I think, my junior year in college. I was playing baseball at a school in Kansas, Washburn University. And uh, I, I, I realized I wasn't good enough to be a professional player. I just wasn't going to do that. I didn't have that talent level. So I thought maybe the me next best thing would be either a coach or a broadcaster. And I just, uh, I really loved the action. I, I really didn't have an interest in being a TV anchor you know, uh, and showing my, my ugly face on TV every night. That wasn't going to be for me. Um, I wanted to be in the action. I want to be at the game and I want to describe it because it was really fun for me to, to, to listen to, to guys growing up, kind of like what you described with me. And I just realized early on, that's what I wanted to do. And I couldn't find a job for a long time. And, and I finally did some high school stuff and some small college stuff. And, and then, uh, 
uh, I started doing basketball. I did football and, and basketball and then baseball later on. But the basketball just kind of grabbed me. It was just like it was it was fast paced. It was energetic. It was kind of rapid fire. Once you got in the, especially the NBA, the ball is always moving. So you're always describing. So it just sort of grabbed me and wouldn't let, let go. And so I just uh, followed that dream and got a big break doing the Timberwolves and then the bigger break coming to Denver to do the Nuggets. That is amazing. Well, you, you know, you speak about basketball, but baseball was your sport. You played baseball. Did, was there a lot that you had to learn to go to basketball? Because I'm interested how a baseball guy, and, the, and maybe you were a three-sport athlete too, right? Like you did football, baseball, and basketball. But interestingly enough, I'm sure when you're auditioning for a job in as a sportscaster or broadcaster, you have to be able to have some depth and you certainly had that by the time I was listening to you. Did you always have those chops in basketball as well? Was that natural to you or, or how did you go about learning that and becoming the expert? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's like anything else in life, Jim, the more you do it, the better you get at it, at least theoretically, that, that should be the case. And uh, with football and baseball, um, I didn't have the, the ease of it, like I seem to have in basketball, there was just something about basketball. And my, I have, I have four brothers, and my older brother said this to me when I first started. He's like, "Dude, you just got you got a natural knack for basketball for some reason. It just flows." And so, um, I, I I I realized that maybe that that was I was built for that. And uh, I just try to get better and listen to other people and try to get better and better and uh, take things other people were using, Jim, and incorporate that in the broadcast, listen to things that I didn't like from other broadcasters, throw that stuff out and just kind of develop my own little style. But yeah, back to answer your question, I think basketball was always the, the one that, that sort of clicked with me. Um, love doing football, love doing baseball, but basketball just seemed easier on the radio for me than the other two sports. Well, I'll tell you what, it really, really showed that. And so what I'm hearing you say, Jerry, is that you operated in your strength zones, that you had a, a desire and an ability. And when you put those together to meet a need, you found success. I'm interested as a person who was a sports personality. Did you go back as you in a way to refine your craft? I think we could all learn from this to, to get better, like you said, getting the reps in. Did you do a lot of listening to yourself? Because, you know, I do some amount of this kind of thing, whether it be podcasting or doing little videos or whatever. And my thing has always been, I can't really change anything that I did before. And I want the rep. So I typically don't spend a lot of time listening to things that I did in the past. How did you go about honing your skills to become better? Did you spend a lot of time reviewing the tape, so to speak, of yourself or yeah. did you kind of let it go? I did. I did that a lot of that early on, Jim. I was just really intent on being uh, an improved broadcaster, just being the best I could. And when I started out, I wanted to get to the NBA and I thought, well, if you can do that, you better be good. And so I did that a lot. I listened to tapes. Uh, I, I tried to be my my best critic. Uh, there was some stuff where I thought, wow, oh, you sounded good. Other stuff's like, why in the world did you say that? And why did you say it that way? How did you come up with describing that play? And so I, I think it really helped me to go back and listen to my my stuff. And and I had some friends that uh, I asked to do the same thing. Is hey, what do you think of, you know about this segment or you know this quarter of basketball, whatever it might have been, and uh, just get feedback from people and then have a thick skin about it. That was a thing. A lot of people don't want to be criticized. They're like, you know, I'm doing it my way. So, you know, don't worry about 
I'm not going to worry about what you think. I wasn't that way. I wanted input. I wanted reaction because I just wanted to get better. So uh, it was important for me to listen. I Later on in my career, I didn't do that as much. I, when I first started with the Rockies, I did because I wanted to improve the, the baseball play-by-play. But and as I got into the NBA and especially those later years, I just sort of turned that mic on and, and, and went after it. It was flowing. And I'm telling you, I'm – I do a word of the year every year, Jerry, and this year my word is flow, as in the flow state. And I'm sure, you know, you've been around so many incredibly high-level athletes, the best in the world. You probably have heard that term bantied around a lot is being in flow. And so with that being my word of the year, typically, you know, four to five days a week, I'm learning, reading, listening to something about flow. And one of the things is when, like you just said, when you can turn that mic on and it just pours out of you, you're in flow. And I can feel that when, when I'm around someone, whether I'm watching them or listening to them, the way I really think of this is when I hear a musician, a professional musician, do what they do. Like I tried to take guitar and so I took lessons for years, but I never got to the point where I didn't have to think where my fingers were. And so what I hear you say is that when you were in flow, when you, when you got to the game, you were excited to get to the arena, the lights came on, the camera said on air, or the, the mic turns on and it's go time, that you literally poured out the artistry. Is that kind of how it felt to you being courtside and game time? Yeah, it did. Yeah, that's a great description of it, Jim. And, and, and it, that really was the challenge for me. It was, you know what, you're, you're in the spotlight here. You got people listening to you. Let's, let's do this. Let's get prepared. Let's be as prepared as you can. And let's go out and try to execute this broadcast. Not unlike the the, the sports performance, you know, you prep, you get ready, you have a game plan, you go out there and you try to win the game. So that's what I did as a broadcaster thinking, all right, prep is in, I'm ready to go. Now let's go execute this broadcast. Keep, yeah, you know, I, I always have little um, cues for myself. It was keep the energy up. I thought that was really important. You know, you know this, Jim, basketball, especially in the NBA, it's an emotional, physical game. I mean, it's, they're banging around and they're yelling at each other and trash talk and fans and energy and noise and music. Let's put that in the broadcast. So that's what I always try to do is you know, keep the energy level up, uh, stay on the ball, don't, don't get behind the whistle, all those kinds of things. And, and that's what I tried to do for 18 years doing those Nuggets games. Well, you did it and did it well, my friend. I do need to ask, you, you talked about mentors, and I'm a big fan of mentors. I've had some great mentors in my life that have helped me in the business world, in the healing arts world, in all these different places, communication world. You, you said that you wanted to do some of these guys proud that you had seen. Can you share with us some of the mentors that you had as far as broadcasters, people that you looked up to that, that you're like, man, that guy or that lady tells the story the way I would want to tell her that makes me feel like I'm engaged and involved in the game. And any of those people uh, really stick out to you? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple, there's a couple, Jim. Um, when I first started doing basketball, there was a guy named Jim Durham that did the Chicago Bulls on the radio forever. And I used to get that station when I was living in Topeka, Kansas, where I was, uh, I lived for eight years and went to school there and uh, I could get that station. I think it was WBBM or something. And I'd listen to Jim and I think, man, I, I want to copy that style. He's really good. And it was in the middle of the, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, he, he had, he had some great teams to call, but, but Jim Durham was really good on the radio. Uh, Dick Enberg, the late Dick Enberg, is a guy that uh, I really wanted to emulate when I did TV. I just thought he had a, an economy of words that was just perfect. He just seemed to have the right, uh, and it wasn't a, wasn't a long, elongated 
comment, but it was always the right words at the right time with the right energy level. And so I always respected that. So those two guys, Jim Durham on radio and, and then um, the TV guys, I, I think he probably sticks out more than any, but I had some other ones that I would kind of follow. And I wouldn't say necessarily mentors because I didn't really know those guys, but I sure would listen to them and I sure would watch them on TV a lot and try to take the pointers. Those are great examples. I know both of those voices, and boy, Dick Ember yeah. was so fantastic. I loved him absolutely on on football. And you know, you mentioned that you did some football, and you've even done some TV and some radio. Obviously, you preferred radio. Was there something about it that really hooked you into radio as opposing to pushing more towards the the television side? Yeah, I, I just I always loved, Jim, the challenge of the radio, and that is being the eyes of the listener. And I always kind of envision myself, uh, this maybe sound a little crazy, but talking to a blind person, somebody that, that is not the game, that could not see, they're not watching TV, they're, they're not watching the game on TV, or they're not at the arena, you have to be their eyes. So I thought, okay, I'm going to speak to a blind person who can't see anything, so I need to paint the whole picture. So I always tried to do that, and for me, that was really fun. And the other part of that was all those 18 years I did the Nuggets, I was by myself. I didn't have a color commentator. I turned the mic on, and I went. It was me. I was I was out there. Um, you know, I was out there for, for the taking every single night. We're in TV. You've got this production crew. You've got a director, a producer, a color commentator. This is a big team of people that, which is fine. But I just love the challenge of kind of doing this on my own and and being the the one man band. And hey, let's get it done. So um, I enjoyed TV. I just really enjoyed the the challenge of radio a lot more. Indeed. And you know, I, I'm interested now that you brought that up. I've never really thought about this, but <clears throat> it seems like in a great number of circumstances. There is often even a partnership, a duo for radio too, but you were always on the, you know, on, on the single side and, and they had, I think Jason Kosminski was part of the kind of the background scene. If I remember right, it's been a long time. That yep. name pops yep. up in my mind, but um, it was yep. that at your kind of request to, to be a, a single, single man, one man show, or was that the nuggets that wanted it, to have it that way? How did that get set up? Yeah. You know, when I first came to the Nuggets, um, that was the new format. They had had a play-by-play guy and a color guy on TV together, on uh, radio together forever since the franchise started. And I came in in 1992, and Tim Lywicky was the president then. And Tim's like, I got this new idea. We're going to have a studio host, which was Jason Kosminski, um, and then we're just going to have a play-by-play guy and no color guy. Are you okay with that? And I said, that sounds great to me. I did all this college and high school stuff by myself. And you know what, Jim, you, you think about it, NBA basketball is so fast. There, there's not much time for a color guy on the radio. I mean, the only breaks you get are free throws and out-of-bounds plays, and they only get a couple seconds there. So it's like, I don't really need a color commentator. So um, they said, let's try it for a season and see how it goes. And I was like, yeah, man, let's do this. I, I, I want to, I don't really need the color guy. I would, I would take one, but I don't really, there's really not room for one or time for one. And we took off that first year and they loved it. And we never kind of looked back at the next 17 years about having a, 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 a color guy. Are you into March Madness? So we're just getting ready for March Madness to come on right now. Is that something that you follow? Yeah. Did you do a lot of the, or any of the tournaments? What's that experience for you? What does it mean to you? Yeah, it's, it's, oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. I'd never had the opportunity to do it. 
all those years I was doing the Nuggets, we were playing. The Nuggets were playing during during uh, March Madness, so I never had that opportunity. And then uh, once I got out of the NBA and into baseball, I was at spring training and doing Rockies games when those games were on. So I never had the opportunity to do TV or radio. Always wanted to. Always thought that would be really, really fun, even just to do a couple of games early on in the bracket. But, no, I, I love it. Uh, our family has the – the pool going and we get very competitive and it's worth about 20 bucks, but we're really, we're just at each other's throats about it. So um, I have a, I have a mother-in-law, 84 year old mother-in-law who ha- knows nothing about sports, but she loves the final four. She loves March Madness and gets into our pool. And so I really get a kick out of, out of watching her do all I watch the game. She doesn't even know what's going on, but wants to see the outcome. So yeah, absolutely love March Madness. I, I get caught up in it every year. I do as well. And, you know, you had mentioned in a a couple of moments ago about spring training and baseball. When you started doing baseball, was were you looking at lots of teams or did the Rockies opportunity just open up for you where it was all of a sudden handed like I got a chance to do baseball, the sport that I played? How did that transition go for you? Yeah, that's exactly what happened, Jim. It was just, I was doing the Nuggets and cruising along. And like I said, for 18 years, and and all of a sudden uh, I heard that the radio announcer, one of them for the Rockies was retiring. And I thought, man, I've always wanted to do baseball. It's right in my backyard. Um, I know some of the principals over there. So I applied for the job. I was one of 276 people who sent resumes in. And I was so blessed, so fortunate to get that job. But yeah, that's what happened. It was, uh, I wasn't planning on, on leaving. The opportunity opportunity presented itself and, and here it was always want to do baseball and and most guys don't get that first major league baseball break at age 50 but that's what happened to me I was 50 years old when I got that job and I, I never thought it would happen that is fantastic I think that goes to show that for people listening or watching this you never know when your break is going to come you just keep your head down you yeah. do your thing you do your work and the the if we're in the right place what I've always found and we're right mentally and emotionally and spiritually, whatever you want to do and doing the right things physically, all of a sudden we do inspired action and the next step just kind of shows itself. And that sounds like it happened to you in baseball. It did. That's exactly what happened. And like I said, I, I had always kind of thought about doing baseball and I thought it would be really cool. And I, and I was a baseball player and a coach and it was kind of my sport. I really didn't think I'd get the opportunity. But like you said, you put your head down and, and keep grinding. You never know what opportunities are going to be there, no matter what age you are, or where you're at in your career. And it just sort of happened. I never saw it coming, but, but I, I, it happened and I was very thankful for it. And so you you are now on the baseball schedule. Now, here's the interesting thing. Both these seasons are similar in length, and they're both a grind for everybody involved. I really am interested in hearing from you, Jerry, when it came to the travel schedule. You got a, you know, what, an 82-game season versus a 160-game season or whatever. The NBA is roughly half of what the the, uh, baseball guys go through. How was that for you? In the, the travel, the in and out. Now, I, I know baseball will be home for a homestand and then away for several days. Was that like, um, was there much difference in that? And how did that affect you with your health habits? Because I know you're a real healthy guy, which we're going to get to. I know you like to do a lot of different things and, and your family. What was that travel like? And was it different from basketball to baseball? Yeah, it's a lot different. Schedule, like you said, is different. You play twice as many games in Major League Baseball. You know, the biggest thing was you just playing every day. In Major League Baseball, you get a day off every two weeks on the average, or in the NBA, you play three times a week. So you get four days off in the week and you play three days. 
just getting used to that schedule. And I told people after I got going that first year, it's like, man, you better love baseball if you're going to do this because it's every day. It's a grind and it's fun and it's rewarding, but you're there every day. There are no days off. There's no there's no day off where you go ride your bicycle like I used to do when I was doing the Nuggets. And and so I had to get used to that. The other thing was spring training. There's another 25 games that you do during spring training. So you're pushing 200 broadcasts a year, and that can wear you down, especially the travel. But it was easier travel, Jim, because in the NBA, you always play night games. Maybe once or twice a year, you'd play a Sunday afternoon game. Otherwise, you're playing at night. And then the NBA travel is you play the game, and then you travel after the game to the next city or you go home. So it was always 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning before I'm getting to bed. Where in baseball, you have afternoon games. You have these getaway days, which are awesome. You actually get home or you get the next city, and you're in bed at 11 o'clock at night, way unlike the NBA. So there's a trade-off. Uh, each has its own kind of uh, checks and balances, but I, I enjoyed I enjoy travel. Uh, I, I like getting out seeing new places and new stadiums and arenas and all that. So the transition wasn't that difficult other than having to play every single day. And what about taking care of your health? Because again, you are very, very health conscious. Did you have to take certain steps to ensure that you could get your workouts in, that you didn't get caught up in eating fast food every day and, you know, making sure you got enough rest? Like you say, going to bed at three or four, I mean, your body needs rest and your voice needs rest and you got to have your mind sharp. What did you do to guard or protect your health during all those years? I mean, we're talking several decades here. What did you do? You know, I just, I just tried, Jim, to stay as disciplined as I could be. You know, with my diet, there are certain foods I just refuse to eat. You know, I don't think I've had a French fry in 25 years. And, you know, just certain things you can cut out that, that wasn't hard for me to do. And just get into that routine. Uh, when, you're, when you're off on the road or you're, you got a night game, you hit you hit the the hotel uh, fitness club, and I just made it a habit every day, and and made it a priority. And uh, w- did I do it every single day? No, but I did it most days, and and I I stepped I kept in in shape that way. And it's just like anything else in life; you stay with it, you get better at it. But the big thing is the discipline. And um, I I you know like I said, I wasn't perfect with it, but I think I stayed pretty true to it all those years. I would agree with that, and you know what you say right there to me. For anybody listening, that was pure gold because if I could, I get asked sometimes like, what's the key to success? If you had one thing that you would say is the key to success, you talked about discipline, but then I think the overlying or overarching theme for that, that I got was consistency. And that, that's the one word that I share with everybody. Cause you know what, at the end of the day, we're all being consistent every day. We're being consistent. It just, what are we being consistent with? What are those habits like? Are they habits that are going to take us to where we want to go or they have it that are going to take away from where we'd like to be. And so if, if, you know, if you're out there listening to this or watching this and you, you got a dream or you're not where you want to be, Hey, look at those habits and the consistency and then change what you're doing to, so that they, they align, if you will, with what you're looking for. And I'm sure you had to have seen that because you were among the top athletes, like we said, on the planet in basketball and baseball, I'm sure you saw a ton of consistency, discipline, effort, they all have to go through that. Um, what do you think about that, about consistency and its yeah. effect on, on the outcome of someone's life? 
Absolutely vital, Jim. You, you, you hit the nail on the head and, and I think it's priorities and it, you set your priorities and then you be consistent with them. And it's not just working out or it's not just diet. It's your, you know, it's your life. It's your family. Um, how are you as a, as a parent? Are you consistent with your kids? Um, are you checked out with your wife once in a while? Cause you're too tired. You can't do those things. You just have to stay at it. And I saw that to get at your point. I saw that, especially in baseball, the really successful guys like Charlie Blackman and some of the others that I was around for all those years have a routine, Jim, and they stick to it. And, and it's the same every single – they just stay consistent every single day. There's, there, there was never a game where I saw Charlie Blackman or didn't see Charlie Blackman in the clubhouse watching film at 4.30. That was his schedule. All right, I'm going to watch film at 4.30. I'm going to go do this at, five, at 4.45, and I'm going to take batting practice at 5.30. He had this routine that he never veered from, ever. I, not one time in the 10 years I was there, and that Charlie was there for – eight or nine of those, uh, did I ever see him venture off and not follow that routine? And I, I saw that with the successful guys in the NBA and in Major League Baseball. You have the plan, you stick with it, you stay consistent, and I think it's really key to life. Like you said, you, you, you do that in your personal life, things are going to take care of themselves. Oh, man, that makes me so pumped. I'm ready to go work out right now. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if you were to compare in a broad, broad stroke brush base baseball and basketball the players in those two sports is there a significant difference between the attitude that you see between nba players and baseball players because i think the perception would be that there is that you got the more prima donna type of athletes me centered in in basketball and and more of the team guys and laid back guys in baseball but that's not necessarily true so, so for someone who is in it for so long on both sides can you describe the diff- the overall differences, or are they pretty much the same? Yeah. There are some similarities, but there are some big differences as well. I think that the biggest one is the nature of the sport, Jim. In basketball, as you know, there's a, there's a college draft, and guys come out, and they make an immediate impact. I mean, if you're talented – and you're a top player, you're going to make an immediate impact on, on your NBA team. Where in baseball, if you're the number one pick overall, it's probably three or four years before you make the big leagues because you're playing the minors to develop. Wow. And and, and how about this? Only 48%, 40, I just checked this the other day, 48% of first-round draft picks in Major League Baseball ever make the majors. It's less than half. And so because guys get hurt or they're just not good enough, they they go in the minors and they discover that they're maybe not as good as people thought they were going to be. Um, So the nature of the sport is different that way. In football, especially too, like basketball, you you go in the NFL, if you're a top player, you're going to have an impact. You're going to be you're going to you're going to be a great player right away if you're if you have talent. Not so in baseball. But here's a common denominator. Uh, What I've seen over the years, 20 years in, in, in the NBA and 10 in Major League Baseball. The very successful athletes, Jim, are the ones who have a passion for the game. Guys in the NBA, I I saw a million of them, um, were incredibly talented, but just didn't have the passion for the game and never really developed to be the player they could be. In in Major League Baseball, the same way. They just kind of went through the motions. 
But the guys like Charlie Blackman and Nolan Arenado, who had this passion for the game, just loved to play every single day, are the ones that are successful. Same way in the NBA. Um, I, and I saw it starting with Michael Jordan, and I would I would see him practice, and I'd see him in games. And guy just loved to play, just loved basketball, loved to be out there. And those are the guys that are successful in both of those sports. Basketball and baseball are the guys that have the passion for the game. With you having been around so many of these great athletes, was there any one that you could think of that you just most connected with or appreciated in each sport? So one basketball person that you're like, man, just as a person, well-rounded, great athlete, great human, all that stuff, incredible work ethic, incredible discipline and consistency. Was there one that just really stuck out or was a complete character for you in each sport? Yeah, I think in, in, in basketball is Dikembe Mutombo. I think we all, if, we, if we've been around here for a while, remember Dikembe. He was just that guy that had the passion for the sport of basketball, but had that competitive drive as well. He just wanted to win. He wanted to go out there and kick some butt and, and win the darn game. He didn't care about anything else. And, and I respected that for him. And his work ethic was incredible. And then the more I got to know him, we actually did some, um, some charity stuff together. He, he he's a man of amazing integrity. I mean, he he will never tell you this, but he's given away almost a million, a hundred million dollars in his career. Now he's made a lot of money, Jim, but he's but a hundred million dollars is a hundred million dollars. Wow. Keep that. He's given that much money away, and, and it's I know his financial guy, and he said, yeah, he's close to a hundred million dollars that he's just written checks over the years on. Uh, I respect that. So he in basketball, I think in in baseball, it's it's probably. Uh, Charlie Blackman, uh, you know, I mentioned Charlie already, but Charlie's kind of the epitome of that that baseball guy that loves the sport, has a passion for it, has gotten really good at it. He wasn't great. He wasn't a great player when he first came up. In fact, I think my second year or third year, he barely made the team, and then all of a sudden he became this star. But um, his work ethic, um, his spiritual convictions, he and I are both Christians, and uh, we help lead a Bible study or used to on the road, and Charlie was there in the front row every single day. So just uh, I think the respect I have for him as a player and as a human being probably would be the equivalent of Dikembe Mutombo. That is so good. I got to tell you, it's so funny. Two, I remember there's one thing I remember about Dikembe, and, well, actually two things. One, of course, was his signature move after hitting a block where you do the no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. finger. And, and then the other time was in the game seven when Denver's the wild card and, and they knock out Seattle and he's laying on the floor with the ball above his yeah. head in happy tears almost. You know, those are yeah. the two moments. And now, interestingly enough, Jerry, I, I saw a commercial last night with Dikembe in a grocery store, like knocking back stuff, trying to go onto shelves and into carts. It was so funny. It was hilarious because he still looked great, you know? So anyway, that was awesome. That's awesome. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit now um, because it hasn't been all just rainbows and roses and and goodness for you. You've had some incredible challenges along the way. Um, One of them being literally being in a plane crash where a lot of people didn't make it. They perished and you happened to survive. Can you speak to what happened on that process? Like, what's it feel like? Did they come over the cockpit and did they say, guess what, guys, we're going down, put your hands between your head, like, or did it just happen? What was that like, if you can describe it? Because none of us, I mean, point something of 1% have ever experienced any trauma like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Jim, it was a kind of a crazy story in our, in our situation because it was unique in a lot of ways, but it was a flight from Denver to Chicago, a United Airlines flight and a, and a DC 10. So a jumbo jet, 296 people were aboard, got about halfway to Chicago and the number two engine, the tail engine exploded. And when it did, it injured the rear of the aircraft and caused us to make a, a crippled emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. So when it happened, um, we started to go down. That engine blew, and I, I heard it, felt it, and you could feel the plane start to go down. And I thought at that point, that was it. We were going to drop down, hit the ground, and everybody would be dead. But after uh, about 30 seconds, we leveled off again and then got this directive, go to Sioux City. And Captain Al Haynes is our cockpit captain. And to answer the question, he got on the PA system the first time and said, all right, the engine explosion uh, has caused a lot of damage to the plane. We're having a lot of trouble controlling the aircraft. Been given a directive to make this emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. He eventually said, Jim, um, this is really difficult. We're having a lot of trouble controlling the plane. It is going to be a crash landing. We're not going to land safely. We're not. Don't, he said, don't plan on walking off this plane after it comes to a halt because that's not going to happen. They realized they couldn't slow the plane down. If they pulled back on the re remaining two throttles, they were going to lose control of the plane. So a normal DC-10 landing, Jim, is about 125 miles an hour and touch the ground. We hit it 255. And, and that by itself in a DC-10 is going to spell disaster. You can't land a plane that big that fast. Um, and so we hit the ground and, and immediately inside the cabin, total chaos bodies are being thrown about some were still strapped in their chairs the chairs had given and they were thrown in their chairs others thrown from their chairs and smoke and fire and debris and then after about 20 seconds or so uh, we flipped over frontwards it kind of cartwheeled end to end and then that's where the videotape of this crash picks up and we broke into big pieces and i slid I think I slid 5,600 feet from, from the time of the impact till we came to a stop. So well over a mile into a cornfield, uh, hanging upside down and eventually got out of my chair and, and found an opening in the back of the plane. We're completely full of smoke now and finally got out after two or three minutes of being in the cabin and not, not trying, not finding a way to get out. And, uh, and I finally did find this little opening in the back of the plane and scooted out into a cornfield in Sioux city, Iowa. Wow. Literally, I'm having a hard time even responding to that because you do such a poignant and elegant job of telling a horrific story. And I know that you've probably shared that a million times, but so powerful. You thought that was it. I'm sure when it was, when it was happening, did you, when you checked out, were you an emotional wreck? Were you calm? Were you surprised? Were you thankful? Were you all those things? And you see all this catastrophe around you. What's going through your mind and your heart? Yeah. Yeah, good question, Jim. I, I think before we hit, um, I was convinced I was going to die. I, I just – I didn't know any plane crash survivors. And I thought people don't survive these kinds of things. You know, this is, this is going to be it. And I remember telling myself, all right, if you're dead or you're hurt seriously, you, you, you obviously can't do much. But I told myself over and over toward the end before we hit, if you're not, if you're not hurt seriously and you're okay, don't panic. Don't flee the plane. Try to help other people. And so that, those thoughts paid off for me because that's exactly what happened. We came to a stop, and a lot of people around me, I could tell, were not survivors. They had died on the impact, but, but I was still there. So I, I stayed calm or as best I could. Um, and I just sort of reacted to circumstances. And you know, I, I, I thought, 
my, first of all, plan A for me was to go through the emergency exit, which is just off to my right uh, for my chair. And I was going to open the emergency exit, deploy the chute, go down the chute first, and then help people at the bottom. And the flight attendant who was sitting next to the, the emergency exit in a jump seat was going to help people through the chute after I deployed it. When we came to stop, there was nothing left of it. It was gone. It was a wall of burning scrap. And so my my plan B was just to react to the circumstances, and and that was – you know, follow the, the, the way out of the plane like other people were. And, and finally I got out of there, but at the beginning it was, um, it was pretty chaotic, but, uh, I think I convinced myself to stay calm and, and those kinds of thoughts really paid off as, as we proceeded. And as time went by, by the way, quick two-part question from the time the explode, the engine exploded till the time you hit the ground, how long was that? 45 minutes. Oh yeah. my goodness! You had yeah. forty-five yeah. minutes yeah. to reflect yeah. and contemplate. Yeah, life. yeah. What what happened, Jim? This is crazy. It was actually too long. It that that was way too long to think about things. But um, the plane wouldn't go straight, and it wouldn't. They couldn't go left. The plane kept on on its own, veering off to the right. So each time they got on a heading for Sioux City, the plane would veer off course, and they have to come back and line up again. We did that five times, and that's why it took us so long to get there. It took us forty-five minutes. So. Um, it, it was only about 150 air miles from the time from the point of the explosion to Sioux City, but it took us 45 minutes to get there because we went around in circles. So wow! I mean, there was we had we it paid off, Jim, because we had time to get ready mentally and physically. We actually went to we practiced emergency landing position and procedure twice, not once but twice. I remember doing it once, and then they, the flight attendants, all right, we've got to go back around again, so let's try this again. And so we knew that we we're going to you know, grab the seat back in front of you, uh, cross your arms, wedge your forehead in the seat back in front of you, hold on as best you could. You know, we, we knew how to do that. So that paid off. But 45 minutes to think about your destiny was a little bit <laughs> – probably a little bit too long in, in most of its minds. Was there a lot of panic on board as through that time? Did it seem to get worse? I mean I can only imagine the horror and people potentially screaming and crying the entire time, not just before it hits with that much time. Was, was that what it was like or were people kind of somber and calm and – yeah, you know when we had the explosion, because uh, it was pretty violent, uh, there was a lot of panic. Then we went into a drop, so that caused a lot of panic. But once we came out of that drop and leveled off, eventually the panic subsided pretty well, and and you could still hear people in the ensuing forty five minutes crying and but kind of quietly doing it. I, I call it a controlled panic. And then uh, once we hit the ground, you know, all bets were off, and and it was it, it was there was so much noise of metal on metal and and concrete and all that you really couldn't hear any screaming but uh once we came to a halt um eerie eerie silence to be honest um i didn't hear any voices at all once we came to a stop and that's because most people were about half the people in our area were dead but uh, a lot of people were in shock like i was trying to figure out what the heck has happened and how do we get out of this thing so uh, at the beginning there was panic but Boy, once we hit the ground, it came to stop, Jim. None of it. There were there was none of that at all. It wasn't people helping themselves. It was people helping each other. Wow. And for the survivors, I've heard of this thing called survivor guilt, where why not me? Why or you know why didn't I die? And and so as opposed to being just thankful to be alive, you, you wonder and struggle. Is, is that a real thing? Did you experience mm-hmm. that? Have you stayed connected to some of the survivors and, and you hear those stories? Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's a real thing for sure. And I saw a, a counselor a couple of weeks after the crash, Jim, and he said that. He said, you're going to experience survivor's guilt. I'm like, what? I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I survived when everybody around me died. I should be thinking I'm, I'm – and after about a month after that plane crash, I look in the mirror and want to see that guy. And I couldn't. I'd, I'd see this guilt. And I think especially for me, Jim, it was this little boy sitting in front of me. There was a year and a half old boy, 18 months old, uh, sitting in his mom's lap, uh, basically on the floor between his mom's feet. And he died in the crash. And that one really got me. That that one, that's your, because I kept thinking, all right, uh, I measured this one time. It's like two and a half feet between seats. And this kid's two and a half feet in front of me. He dies in the crash and I come out without any serious injuries. Um, I just I, I had a lot of trouble processing that, and that's what caused a lot of survivor's guilt for me. Man, the kid had his whole life in front of him, and I was 29 years old at the time. You know, why couldn't we have switched? And and so that that kind of survivor's guilt hit me pretty hard, and it still does. It lingers a little bit still. I don't I don't you know I'm not just dis, you know debilitated because I think about it every day, but it comes and goes a little bit, and I still think about that little boy probably about every day. Well, that little guy is in heaven now, and I'm sure he's been yeah. cheering the Jerry Schimmel calls all the way. <laughs> and listen, man, thank you for sharing that that incredibly yeah. uh, intimate, painful part of your life and doing it so well. And I appreciate that. And, and to kind of transition into where you're at now, I know that cycling has been a big part of your life and you're an incredible road bike uh, enthusiast. You spend a lot of time on it. Right now, you're working on this project called Ram a Race Across America. Can you share with us your passion for cycling, how you got into that, and what Ram is all about? Yeah, it goes back to the plane crash we talked about, Jim. And, and uh, you know, after the crash, um, you know, I'd been pretty athletic and, and pretty active, but uh, after the crash, I kind of got this little funk, and somebody said, you know, you should find something physically to do consistently that will really help you um, in, in dealing with the crash. And I thought, you know, I'll dust off this bike I have in the garage. And Jim, I got on my bike and there was just something about it. There was something therapeutic about it. You can appreciate this because you've done this type of thing. But I don't know, it was the speed or the exhilaration or the fact that you could, you know, cover a lot of ground. But there was something about, I think the the pain of it kind of helped a little bit because when I felt pain, I felt like I was alive. And so I got on this bicycle and it just felt good. It just felt like, man, it's it's free. It's it's freeing. It's freedom to me away from the effects of this crash. And so um, I couldn't get off the bike after that. I was like, wow, this is really, (laughs) this is cool. I'm going to stay on this bike as long as I can. So I started doing long distance rides and early 2000s, I did a couple rides across America for charity, just had people pledge to per mile or whatever they want to do. And we raised a lot of money for some really good causes. And then in 2015, um, I'd been thinking about up until 2015, doing the race across America, not a ride where you do 75 to hundred miles a day, but you race your bike across America against other competitors did that in 2015 as part of a two person relay team. And we won that two person relay division that got me thinking about doing solo race across America, solo Ram, which Jim is a completely different animal it's, oh, it's by man. yourself. It's by yourself. 3000 miles. You have to finish in 12 days. So you got to do at least 240 a day by yourself. And so um, I thought about that for years and finally pulled the trigger on that. So that's coming up in June. That's June 15 is day one of Ram. And uh, we're doing it as a charity venture for a group that raises money for disabled athletes 
They help them with prosthetics and special bicycles and all that kind of stuff. The Kyle Pease Foundation. So we're going to raise some money for those guys. And hopefully I'm going to get my butt across the country in 12 days and make this thing work. That is amazing. Now, for people that don't know, you and I had the chance to talk about this a little bit. But in the Race Across America, you have some support. You're riding all the way across, but you have some support. People would say, you can't ride across America and be in a race format by yourself. Give a little bit about the, the support crew and the connection and commitment that this group has to your success. Yeah, it's called the supported race. So it's kind of like the Tour de France. So we have uh, we have a crew that'll be anywhere from six to eight people at any given time. We'll have some people join and drop off during the, the course of the race. But uh, we have an RV so we're going to sleep uh, as a crew, eight of us in an RV for <laughs> for 12 days, hopefully a little, little less than that, um, and just kind of move across the country. But, um, you know, I'll have people helping me with bike repairs and getting water and nutrition and all that. But, yeah, there's, there's a, uh, a rule that you have to have a follow vehicle from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. every day. That means you have to be within 40 feet of the bicycle with lights on. Uh, so the bike has to be in the headlights. So and that by itself is pretty challenging. It's it, you, you'd be surprised how difficult it is to follow a bicycle going, you know, six, 15 to 18 miles an hour for uh, 18 hours a day. It, it, it's it's a challenge. So uh, we have a crew and, and uh, a lot of my family's on the crew. My son-in-law is the crew chief. So uh, we're going to give this thing a whirl. But, yeah, it's a heavily supported race coming up in June. That is going to be amazing. We can't wait to follow it. I do got to ask, and I, and I know I've kept you so long, but I could do this for hours with you, Jerry. <laughs> um, how much in the, in the sense of calories, how many calories and how many ounces of water will you take in to, to do this race across America to yeah. get that far, that fast? What's your nutrition expenditure? Yeah, I think it's. I'm, I'm guessing it's between six thousand and eight thousand calories a day is is what I'm what I'm going for because I got to be in the saddle for eighteen hours, Jim. I mean, it's the, the biggest challenge is sleep deprivation. That's what everybody says, and oh. I found that out in 2015. So you can always, you know, if you want to finish this in 12 days, you're going to be sleeping three or four hours a night. So um, that that's a big challenge for me. So I'm on the bike eighteen hours minimum. Which is which is between six and eight thousand calories in terms of um, uh, liquids and fluids through the Mojave Desert. That day one is going to be the hottest day. Some I'm trying to do forty five to fifty ounces a, an hour of some kind of liquid, and then once you get past the desert uh, into Colorado and, and on on east, it's probably about half that to maybe two thirds of that. So probably looking at thirty thirty ounces an hour. But you, you got to have calories with that as well. I mean, it gets eight thousand calories a day. You got to take a lot of calories in um, <laughs> as you go, and you can only take so many in while you're riding. So uh, it'll be tricky. Nutrition will be tricky, but I think I've I've, uh, I've zeroed in pretty well. I, I think I've got it figured out. Well, I'll tell you what. You have more than delivered on this podcast. You have been an incredible <laughs> inspiration to me personally, and to so many who will be listening. I would like one last question from you and, and feel free to answer this any way you can uh, or that you like to. If you had one piece of advice that's been given to you that has taken mm. you to this point where now, if you don't mind me saying, you're over 60 years old and you're going to race across America, killing it, super good shape, super successful, hit your dreams, done all the things in your life virtually that you wanted, escaped certain death situation, have a wonderful family, all this is there one piece of advice that you can say was really instrumental that either you got and received that helped you become this incredible human that you've become, 
or that you've learned along the way that you've found out that now you would like to pass along to our audience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jim. I'm glad you asked that. Um, I found this out on my own. Let me preface by saying this. Um, I went through this plane crash, and my wife pointed this out a long time ago, and she's, she's very true. Jim, everybody has their own plane crash. You have yours. I don't know what yours is, but you have a plane crash in your life. Everybody that's lived a, a, a while on this earth has their plane crash. It might not be as bad as what, what I went through. It might be worse. I got a buddy who lost a, a daughter recently. I can't imagine going through something like that. I, I do 100 plane crashes before I would, I would say I want to lose one of my kids. Um, everybody has their own plane crash. You deal with it as best you can. But I think also, Jim, everybody has their own ram. Everybody has their own race across America, something you've always wanted to do, but you've never done. I thought about RAM for 15 years before I, before I pulled the trigger on it. If you have something in your life, we all have them. I know you have, have something, Jim. Uh, your family has it. Your coworkers have it. There's something in your life you've always wanted to do and you've never done. It, it might not be anything extreme as RAM. Um, it might be losing some weight or doing a missions trip or adopting a child or you know, doing your first 5K. Whatever it is, there's something out there you've always wanted to do you've never pulled the trigger on. My advice is, man, go do it. Go pull that trigger. Don't go to your grave regretting something you've always wanted to do. Everybody has their own plane crash, Jim. Everybody has their own RAM. That, my friend, is brilliant. And before we sign off, if people wanted to get involved with RAM, help support you so yeah, they yeah. can donate and give to this fund for disabled athletes, how could they reach out and connect with you? Yeah, thanks for, for asking that, Jim. We have a website for the race for our team. It's called Team KPs. So it's Team T-E-A-M-K-P-E-A-S-E. So TeamKPs.org. So awesome. um, it's for the, yeah, for the Kyle Pease Foundation. So teamkps.org. And there's a spot where you can just securely make a donation if you want. Um, there's a button you can click to track me. You can actually follow my progress through RAM uh, through our website. Uh, information on our crew and on RAM and all that stuff is there at the website, teamkps.org. Hey, I tell you what, you need your, your team support chiropractor. You let me know, man. I'm coming out there. We're going to get you all juiced up. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that because I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jerry Schimmel, what an incredible time for me. Again, uh, I know how busy you are. I know all the things that you've got going on. And just you're, you're showing so many of us how to live a life well-lived and what it truly means to give at every level and to receive in a big way. So thank you. I wish you continued success and many, many blessings, my friend. All right, Jim. You owe me lunch for this, okay? That's all I got to say. <laughs> done and done. We'll do it next week. Okay. Uh, I'd enjoy it, Jim. Thank you for having me, my Thank friend. Thank you.